You've seen the headlines. Teen fatally stabbed on transit in BC, a man seriously injured after being knifed while waiting for a bus in Edmonton, a woman dying after being set on fire in Toronto. From coast to coast, Canada has seen an uptick in what police are calling unprovoked stranger attacks. They're not just happening in big cities either. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post reporter Tristan Hopper joins me to discuss what's driving these sometimes deadly assaults, what it has meant for how safe Canadians feel, and what can be done to address the violence. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about the show. So Tristan, earlier this year I spoke with your National Post colleague Adrian Humphreys about recent violence on the transit system in Toronto, emphasized by fatal stabbings and a woman who died after being set on fire. But incidents like these aren't just isolated to Canada's largest city. Where else are we seeing similar outbursts of violence? Uh, Vancouver uh, would be the trendsetter on this. Uh, so if uh, it was right around 2019, 20, no, it was around 2020 uh, that uh, Vancouver police officers started comparing notes and they were saying, hey, I've noticed a lot of just like random stranger attacks. This is just people being violently attacked, sometimes stabbed for no reason, just completely unprovoked. Um, so that was around the time when Vancouver started putting out, uh, they looked at some data and, uh, started crunching the numbers on how many violent attacks were made by people who had no idea who each other was, like completely unprovoked attacks. So they start, they sort of coined this term random stranger attacks <clears throat> right around 2021. And then you started seeing it, uh, in, in Toronto. So in terms of just random attacks, on people completely unprovoked you're just going to the grocery store and someone comes and punches you or stabs you um so it's sort of first showed up like most of these horrible crime trends in vancouver uh it's taken place in toronto uh and you're also seeing a whole bunch of it uh in alberta so it's hard there's no like national database of stranger attacks yet maybe we'll get that at the end of this um but you're essentially seeing it in every major city just in the past year, two years. So that's what's weird about this crime wave is that usually it's just, you know, crime gets real bad in Toronto for a summer or something. You know, the 2005 summer of the gun. Uh, everybody's getting shot in Toronto. Uh, but this is not indicative of a national trend. 2005 actually saw sort of dropping crime trends, dropping violent crime trends everywhere else in Canada. But now, I mean, everywhere from Newfoundland, just pull up any any remote corner of the country and just Google it with the word crime. Crime's up in the Yukon. Crime is up on Prairie First Nations. Crime is up in Newfoundland. Crime is up in the Maritimes. Crime is up in the Northwest Territories. And yeah, a lot of it sort of carries this flavor of random violent attacks in public places. And and as you mentioned, we're talking about people who may be on their way to the grocery store. I know in Vancouver, there was a story about a guy who was just getting waiting for his wife at a Starbucks to come out and he asked a guy not to vape around his kit. Yeah, what what can you tell us about some of these cases? So it's just, uh, yeah, Paul Schmidt, that one particularly got to me because he was in uh, a situation that, that I've personally faced uh, a number of times. You're just out with the family. And this was a central uh, Starbucks location in Vancouver. This is the biggest Starbucks in Vancouver. So this is not, you know, he's walking through East Vancouver, downtown East Side you know, after dusk, this was broad daylight on the weekend at a downtown Starbucks. And he allegedly asked a, a guy not to vape around his kid. And the guy got into it and just ended up stabbing him. So this has happened to me a few times. And I've sort of mentioned this among my social circle. 
Um, and they're like, yeah, I've, I've ridden the bus. There's a guy has just gotten on. He's unstable. He's having a manic episode. He starts getting into it with some women. And then we're all in fight or flight mode to figure out what we're going to do with this guy. So this is something I was just coming out of a church, uh, you know, for unrelated church reasons, just uh, a year and a half ago. And some woman completely out of her head just went up to my, she would have been four years old at the time and just said, we have to kill the little girl. We have to kill the little, you know, completely. I mean, any number of these situations all you need is that person to brandish a knife and suddenly this becomes a life or death scenario. So I forget what your original question was, but um, if you look at uh, a lot of these attacks, I think there, there are polls coming out um, where an increasing number of Canadians are sort of running into this directly. So this isn't a crime wave where it's like, oh yeah, uh, gang members are shooting each other and you know this is apparently a problem. This is, people are noticing uh, that they feel more unsafe. I think there was a poll from Leger or maybe the Angus Reed Institute, and they found that one out of every 20 respondents had sort of feared for their safety in the last six months. Uh, no, one out of every five had feared for their safety. One out of every 20 had been assaulted uh, in a public place uh, in the last year. So I think this is, yeah, just, just ask around. People are noticing this more than prior crime waves. Mm -hmm. And obviously those kind of things that, like, being in a situation where you feel unsafe and or being the victim of of an assault creates a perception that that Canada isn't safe. Like what what is the prevailing attitude am, among Canadians? How does this make people feel about the general safety of their cities? I think it's so if you look at just like raw numbers of violent crime. So um, violent crime has been worse. Uh, so just in terms of just raw numbers of people being stabbed, dying from stabbing, dying from gunshots, that was way worse in the 1960s and 1970s. So just it. I mean, the murder rate is usually the most reliable indicator of crime trends, and murders were way higher, um, I think, as recently as the late 1980s. Uh, so you can still say, well, yeah, we're safer, but I think it's you can still point at crime trends that just didn't exist ever before, uh, stranger attacks being one of them. So, yeah, there's been more murders in the past, uh, but we've never seen random public broad daylight stabbings as a trend uh, line ever before uh, in Canada. Um, another another trend um, is intentional killings of police officers. So this, this actually was shocking to me. When you look at murders of police officers, Statistics Canada tracked it, I think, from the 1960s all the way up to, you know, 2015. They tracked every single police officer who had been murdered on the job. And we averaged about one or less than one per year. So it was very rare that you had someone killed in the line of duty. So, you know, you will often have, you know, police officers die typically in, in motor vehicle accidents, especially if you're a northern detachment and you roll your SUV. You know, that was, they used to be, the, that's typically the leading cause of death on duty for police officers. Um, but, you know, historically, in terms of someone is attempting to kill, a, you know, successfully kills a police officer while they're on duty, that only happened once or twice a year, and we've seen eight of those in the last six months. And also the nature of how they're being killed is different. Um, so again, typically, if a police officer was killed on duty, they were trying to arrest someone, and then, you know, this person shoots them to try and get away. It's in incidental. Most of these recent killings are targeted attacks on police officers. Um, so this is someone lay in wait, uh, they ambush them. I think in the case of Toronto, this was just a police constable enjoying his lunch. He's executed in the back of the head out of Tim Hortons. Yeah, random attacks, police attacks, even though on the whole, I can point to a graph and say, well, violent crime is, is basically the same. 
you can still say, well, it's getting way worse in the most terrifying ways, uh, stranger attacks and, and police attacks. So, yeah, I, I think if people notice crime is happening, this isn't just some moral panic. We'll be right back. What are police saying about this? What are police saying about, you know, what, you know, whether Canadians can feel safe in their cities or about the nature of these violent attacks or what may be causing them? The general sense from police uh, is they're saying that a shockingly small amount of people are sort of responsible for all the crime. Uh, and they're saying, uh, you know, we can we can find them, we can we can arrest them, we can bring them in. But uh, we've had a few reforms to the system recently, and there is just no way to sort of keep them behind the bar behind bars. So I think, yeah, consistent line. You, you've heard it, catch and release uh, justice. This notion that there are, and sh shockingly few. I mean, BC, it's conceivable that a lot of the sort of crime being committed in the cities is like two to three hundred people. These are just chronic offenders. There's usually mental illness at play. There's addiction at play. Just as soon as someone is released, they're committing a crime. They're punching someone within the first few hours out on the street. And the police are saying, uh, yeah, we bring them in. And there's just no mechanism uh, to keep them behind bars, detention, you know, to, to maintain public safety. And so what do police want to see in terms of this? Yeah. So police want to see. Um, I think, yeah, the biggest one, you, you hear a lot about bail reform. And uh, this is sort of an angle I, I hadn't... Uh, heard before reporting on this and they're saying there's no way to enforce conditions of bail and conditions of parole so you're released on bail um you know you're charged with the crime your trial dates uh in one month and you know you're charged with sexual assault um so innocent until proven guilty but they say well in the interim the conditions of your bail are you can't go within you can't go near the workplace or the home of you know the victim um you know the person you're accused of uh, sexually assaulting uh so conditions like that stay away from alcohol stay away from bars, stay away from this section of town. Uh, you also see those conditions put on parolees. Um, now, previously, if you were caught in violation of your parole, so you're in a bar, you're not supposed to, I've seen this, I you know, was drinking in a sketchy bar in the Yukon. Cops would just go in, look around. Oh, there you go. You're violating conditions of your parole. That guy goes to jail, just 30 days. So straight up 30 days, you violated your parole. Because of these bail changes, they're put in front of a judge and they're just given bail again, sometimes within a matter of hours. So what police are saying is, we cannot enforce release conditions um, because you can get someone who just doesn't care about their release conditions. And the worst thing that's ever going to happen to them is they spend a night in jail. So they, there's just no disincentive to just continue committing petty crimes, violating the conditions of their bail. So, yeah, we release these people with, you know, conditions are good. Um, you don't want people in prison. You would rather have them released and abiding by conditions. That's sort of the ideal, isn't it? Um, but if you can't enforce that, uh, there's really no point to it. So, you know, so you, you will have people being given bail, people being, being given parole, and they're caught with firearms. Firearms being particularly serious, you know, you can maybe want to have a drink, not tremendously serious, but if you have an unlicensed firearm on your person within months of getting out of jail, you're probably up to some bad stuff. And there's just no hardcore criminal sanctions for that. So that's why you keep seeing just... Uh, again, a very small cohort of people who don't care about the rules keep breaking the law, and then eventually they get around to killing someone, and you know, then the system has to snap into place. Yeah, I mean, that's what was talked about, I, I believe, in the killing of, a, of an OPP officer. Homicides in Alberta 
the police chiefs here are saying that you're seeing people who are believed to be responsible for these killings being out, some of these killings being out on release. How do we fix that? Or what do the police want to see in terms of fixing bail? Do they want it harder for people to get bail? And how do we fix bail without punishing everyone charged with a crime? Well, they're saying it's a, it's, it's a very, what's, what's interesting about this is it's not just police associations. So you're starting to see progressive politicians and in BC politicians who have typically been very progressive. Uh, So our premier, David Eby, who was a street level activist in the downtown East side. Uh, I mean, at the beginning of my journalism career, if you needed to call a source to sort of, you know, criticize the police, and, you know, called him a bunch of jackbooted fascists. He wouldn't use those words, but he was always the, you know, media voice critical of the police. Now he's the premier. And he is one of the loudest voices in terms of bail reform. So you, the Trudeau government is saying, well, you know, we got to look at all our options for bail reform. Eby last month was saying, no, this is very straightforward. This is very easy. This is not. And he used to be attorney general. He's a lawyer. He knows what he's talking about. He's saying this is a very easy fix. And the very easy fix is when someone is up before bail, um, you allow judges to review their sort of history of prior offenses. So one of the bail reforms that was brought in by the Trudeau government, Bill C-75 in 2018, um, was that this is no longer considered. So a guy is just brought in on breaching conditions, and the judge says, well, that's not a big deal. He was just caught at a bar. I guess we'll just let him out again. And he can't review like, oh, wait, no, he's breaching conditions every 16 hours. Maybe we should actually keep him in jail longer. Um, so yeah, consistently across police associations and, you know, actual justice advocates. Um, they are saying, we have a we have a lot of ideas to fix things, but the easiest number one thing um, is, uh, yeah, have criminal history factor into whether someone gets bail or release. Mm-hmm. Hey, one of the other facets to this is the mental health system. I, I know in the case of two Edmonton police officers who were shot and killed, the, the teenager believed responsible who killed himself was reported to have been the subject of a mental health call prior to the call on the night that ended these two officers' lives. What is the fix for the mental health system or what are the concerns regarding the mental health system in Canada in relation to rising violent attacks? It's basically, um, it's very similar to the addiction problem. So um, if you, I'm sure any number of your listening audience has direct experience with it. There's direct experience in my family. Um, you've got a family member who is just, you know, completely hearing voices, a danger to themselves and others disappear for days on end. They're, you know, sleeping on the street. We don't know where they are. You cannot take that individual and just take them to a facility. Um, you know, please give them care, get them on medication, get them stable, get them out. Uh, it's basically impossible. There are no psychiatric beds. Um, long-term holds are incredibly difficult. Uh, so in my own personal experience, uh, you know, we did managed to get care for that family member, but it took them going into a hospital, uh, you know, threatening to kill the staff and then being pinned down by the guys in the white coats and taken into a padded room. And then, then you were able to get them sort of stable and get them into a sort of a treatment program. So it's, we're in this weird situation of that day, you know, freaking out at the staff and getting pinned down. We're like, oh, thank God that happened. Uh, Because otherwise, you know, any number of things could happen. You you know, could have die by suicide before uh, you ever receive care. So uh, it wasn't too long ago. I mean, people will remember we completed deinstitutionalization in the 1990s. I'm not advocating for a return to the way we used to run psychiatric hospitals, uh, but you're seeing a lot, particularly in BC, you're seeing a lot of politicians saying, well, there should be something. I mean, if you have someone who is just completely out of their minds, hearing voices, 
the police or somebody, family members, should be able to take them to a place in which they, they have sort of care until they're stable. Because now the best you can do is overnight in hospital and you're sent off with some prescription drugs that they're not going to take because uh, they're completely out of their minds. Um, so, and similar with addiction, um, you'll have uh, family, they've, they've got a family member on the street. Um, they're trying to get him into detox. He says, I, you know, mom, I don't want to sleep in the street. I don't want to do fentanyl anymore. I want to get into detox. That's like a 200 day waiting list to get there. So the only care we have is, well, you can go to this building here and do the drug safely in front of a doctor that's available immediately, but actually getting a treatment bed, that's going to be hundreds of days. And, you know, find me the addict that's going to patiently wait 200 days, uh, to get into a hospital bed. So yeah, it is just an, a complete lack of mental health supports. It is one of those... There's a few of these in Canada, but um, it's shocking how little supports there are. You would assume that if you have someone who is effectively criminally insane and a risk to others, that there would be a system to deal with them, but there really isn't. And so you mentioned earlier that the Trudeau government, at least when it comes to calls from progressive politicians who who are seeing these problems increase and police saying they're seeing these problems increase, the the Federal government is kind of reticent when it comes to really discussing some bail reform, but there has to be political ramifications here. What are opposition politicians saying about this? What do they want to see from the federal government? Or is there a signal that we may get some some reform from the Trudeau government before it's too late? Well, the Trudeau government, they always let national crises become, you know, the country's just about to fall apart and then they, you know, they put in they do what everybody's been asking them to do for the last few years. So, you know, I hold out hope this could be done. So you have had acknowledgement from the Minister of Justice, uh, David Lametti. Uh, he said things like, oh, yeah, it, people shouldn't be stabbed on trains. That's bad. Um, so you have had hearings begin uh, on Parliament Hill to look at bail reform. Uh, so the criticism is, you know, there's some very quick reforms you can put in. Uh, and then later we can talk about, you know, restructuring the bail system. But uh, yeah, there, there are moves towards, a lot of this started with Bill C-75, as I mentioned earlier. This was, you know, the Trudeau government's modernization uh, of bail. And that's where you had all of these sort of measures designed to get more people out on bail. So, you know, can't consider the criminal history. Another thing was, and uh, this is factored into some pretty important cases, where beforehand, there was a few considerations on who got bail, public safety being one of them. And then Bill C-75 said, oh, there's this other consideration. You also have to consider whether someone is from a vulnerable population. So, you know, sure, they're a risk to public safety, but, you know, they have an indigenous background. So you don't have that factor in. So I, I don't remember the name of the OPP constable, but this is the rookie OPP constable um, who was shot on a traffic stop just after Christmas. Uh, in that case, uh, the man who shot him, uh, allegedly, was uh, on release. And when you read the decision of how he got bail... The judge says, uh, yeah, he's probably going to hurt someone, but the law compels me to release him because of his indigenous background. So thus he's being released. So, yeah, you could, in terms of smoking guns, uh, you know, harm caused by, you know, ill-considered legislation. That, that's the closest uh, I've been able to find uh, thus far. But uh, anyway, yeah, Bill C-75 is sort of, we didn't really talk about bail being an issue prior to that coming into place. Um, so I think when you're looking at reform, it's, you know, taking away the provisions that that sort of put in. Well, I know it's it's troubling to see all of these headlines and, and uh, over the, the last few months. And hopefully we'll we'll start to see some some greater conversation about how to fix some of these problems as we go forward. Tristan, thanks for your time. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Tyler Dawson. 
Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tristan Hopper. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>